Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Mary and Elizabeth and the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to remind you to sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. In this weekly email, you will receive an update from Peter Lightheart, as well as insight into all of our work here at Theopolis. And when you sign up, you'll get a download of a free ebook from Peter Lightheart on Pado Communion, the Church, and the Gospel. So if you'd like to sign up, there's a link down there in the show notes for you. With that, we hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Mary, Elizabeth, and the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopus Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes is along to uh, help uh, the on the technical side of our podcast. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. We started this a couple of weeks before the season of Advent started, and we're covering these chapters during the season of Advent into the Christmas season and into the early part of uh, the uh, the next year, the first couple of weeks after Christmas, which are part of the Christmas season. Uh, these are, of course, the chapters in uh, Luke that have to do with the Annunciation and birth of John the Baptist, the Annunciation and birth of Jesus. So they're classic, appropriate texts for the Advent season as we celebrate the coming of the Lord during this season. Uh, last time we looked at the Annunciation to Mary, uh, I think uh, I was confused the whole time because I was thinking we were also talking about the Magnificat, but I didn't look carefully at the schedule that I myself had composed for this series. And uh, realized that uh, afterwards that uh, we were focusing on the Annunciation passage, uh, where uh, Gabriel comes and tells Mary that she's going to give birth to uh, the Davidic king, uh, the and who will reign on his father's throne and have an eternal kingdom. Uh, this week we're beginning in Luke chapter one verse thirty-nine, and we're continuing on to verse fifty-six, and this is the account of Mary's visit to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age with John. Mary is now pregnant, and she's going to visit her relative, Elizabeth, and they have an exchange, and that climaxes with the uh, the song of Mary, which is known as the Magnificat. And one of the things that I pointed out in the last session, uh, the last episode, is the prominence of song, and that we'll, we'll be looking at a particular song here in uh, the in this passage, where Mary is singing about the consequences of the birth of her son. Poetry is a recurring genre, you could say, or song is a recurring motif of these stories. When the sun comes, there's an outbreak of song. Um, just as in the Old Testament, when the king is exalted, you have this, this new institution of a, of a choral and orchestral uh, music at the temple. And so now that the king is coming in the flesh, now that the king is coming, the final Davidic king, we have the, the, the outbreak of song uh, both uh, here at the beginning of Luke's gospel and then on to the end of Luke's gospel. Wow, a lot to say here. Um, Mary, again, we just have to be impressed with Mary and uh, the grace she has shown and the the, uh, the faithfulness she has. All she has is this word from 
Gabriel, and immediately she heads to Elizabeth's house um, in order to confer with her. And there, everything seems to be uh, shaken up here. Uh, the baby leaps in her womb. Um, Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit and cries, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Um, and calls Mary the mother of my Lord, as we said last week, um, a uh, something more than just, uh, and it, it can't even possibly mean my my uh, my master. Uh, it means the Lord Yahweh coming to me. So uh, it, it just seems like once once um, the word of God comes through Gabriel to Mary then everything starts to change and people start to hurry and move and change. Um, and that's going to be the case all through the first few chapters of Luke. The leaping of John the Baptist in response to the coming of Christ is something that has been connected to the story of King David leaping and dancing before the Ark of Co the Covenant as it's mm. brought into Jerusalem. Mm. And it seems to me that there is a legitimate connection to be drawn here that as David leaps and dances before the Ark of the Covenant in the garments of the child, so as Mary comes bearing God's presence in Jesus Christ, um, the infant forerunner John dances before Jesus. And here I think we're seeing something um, more about the themes that John expresses in the form of the bridegroom coming and the friend of the bridegroom announcing the coming of the one um, that's coming after him. Um, John the Baptist is a herald of joy. He's not just someone who is an austere Eremite prophet, as many people might think of him, just someone preaching doom and destruction and judgment and you must repent. Um, but he is a herald of joy. He's someone who leaps and dances. He's someone who is announcing a wedding and some event that's about to come. And the very first introduction that we have to him as an actor within the story is as one who's characterized by dancing, which may not be the first thing that we associate with the character of John. But I think it's very important to understand the character of his mission, that he is one who dances before his Lord. Mary's song itself is, uh, as we said before, is uh, connected to Hannah's song uh, back in First Samuel, when uh, Hannah is told that she's going to give birth to a, a son who's going to be a, a great prophet in Israel. And the two songs not only are similar in a lot of the particulars, but they're also similar in their uh, in the context in which they're sung or spoken. Both of them have to do with a great reversal within Israel. And they, they've both been kind of uh, anthems for, a kind of, they can, can become anthems for kind of liberation theology, a kind of permanent revolution that no matter what the order of things is it must be overturned uh whoever's at the top must be taken down you have this kind of permanent cycle of uh, exaltation and casting down but i think if you put the two songs into context you can see what's actually at stake uh, when hannah sings her song she's in a in israel uh, where eli is the high priest hophni and phineas his sons are wicked high priests and Eli is not doing anything to restrain them. Uh, they're guilty of great sins against the Lord, and they're guilty of sexual sins and sacrilegious sexual sins that are taking place in the tabernacle complex. 
those are the people who are running Israel at the time. And so in those circumstances, when those, when Hoff, when Hophni and Phineas uh, are at the pinnacle, what you want the Lord to do is turn things upside down. When people like Hannah and Elkanah, who are faithful, but humble and, you know, forgotten marginal Israelites, when they're at the bottom of the heap, what you want is people like that to be exalted. We want people like Samuel to be exalted and people like Hophni and Phineas and Eli to be cast down. And that's actually, of course, what happens in First Samuel. And Mary's singing in a similar context. Who's in charge of Israel right now? Who are the rich that are right now filled and those who are exalted and the rulers who are now on their thrones? Well, we find out who they are as we go through the gospel story. Uh, we find out that they're the enemies of Jesus. Uh, they're the enemies uh, of uh, the law, in spite of being pretending to be teachers of the law. Uh, they're enemies of God, uh, but they're the people who have who have taken the taken the highest seats, the seats of honor in Israel. Uh, and so, in that situation, what you do want is a revolution. You want the Lord to intervene and visit His people in order to throw down the weak, uh, tr- throw down the strong, throw down the oppressors, and uh, lift up the weak and the humble, as as Mary Mary sings. And this is a theme in both of these songs, uh, both the Magnificat and the Benedictus. Um, we'll get to that next week, I know, but Zechariah also um, blesses God that they'll be saved from, they're delivered from their enemies. Uh, I think three times it comes up, at least twice in Zechariah's prophecy. And so, as you say, it's important to remember the context because the enemies turn out to be Herod who needs to be brought down from his throne, uh, and the brood of vipers that comes from Jerusalem uh, when John the Baptist is preaching, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rulers of the Jews, those are the enemies that will be um, uh, will be overturned. Uh, and the exalted are those like Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary um, and John the Baptist and all those, all those faithful remnant in Israel will end up in this reversal, becoming um, the new leaders in the, in the world. Those themes of reversal, the attention also given t- to the stirring of the spirit, and the contrast between perception and imperception imper- um, are important at the beginning of Luke, but also at the beginning of Acts, where you have the misperception that the disciples are drunk when they're not in fact drunk, um, where you have the religious leaders failing to perceive what God is doing in their midst. And to some extent, you have that even in the case of Zacharias. Um, The way that the Spirit is moving, and there's almost a movement of the Spirit. First of all, John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies concerning um, Mary. And then later on, you'll have at the birth and naming of John the Baptist at his circumcision, Zacharias will also prophesy as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's almost a spreading of that filling of the Holy Spirit from John the Baptist to his mother and then to his father. And then the whole of Israel is experiencing something of this stirring of the Spirit. Later on, we'll see the character of Simeon, who's brought into the temple as He's told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before seeing the Lord's Christ. And then he comes in the Spirit into the temple. 
um, the focus upon the spirit at the beginning of Luke is um, very pronounced. And we don't see that same degree of focus upon the spirit again until the beginning of Acts. And I think that's not an accident. The connection between the spirit and women and the temple unites both of those, the beginning of both of those books. And both of them are setting up a great work of God that's about to begin. And the conflict as well is part of that. Just as David is filled with the spirit as he's anointed by God, and then um, you have the character of Saul afflicted with a troubling spirit, an evil spirit. So Israel is everywhere Jesus goes, afflicted by evil spirits. And the great evil spirit, devil, as Christ has to meet with him and um, stand off against him in the wilderness. And so there is something stirring here, something that um, is already anticipating the changing of the fortunes of Israel, the turning of the tide. And again, it's worth remembering that God's great works have long gestation periods. This is not straight into the action. You'll have to wait for another 30 years until things really start happening. But here, God is already at work. And in those secret places with small people in out-of-the-way locations, people that would be looked over by the society, God is already at work and something is changing, even beneath that surface. And in a few decades' time, it will break the surface and everything will um, be affected from then on. Yeah, and I think the the point about the the tininess of the beginning point it's it's striking in the uh, in verse forty nine in Mary's song. The mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Echoes of the song of Miriam at the sea. Uh, echoes of psalms that talk about the Lord uh, destroying Egypt and uh, driving out Israel's enemies and planting them in the land, and all these great world historical events. And yet what Mary's talking about is her pregnancy. And that for her is a great deed of the Lord that's done by the mighty one, the holy one of Israel. And in fact, it is, it, it's, uh, it's exactly that. It's the, the greatest deed. The one, as you said, Alistair, that's going, to, that's going to disrupt everything when it emerges. But it starts in this very, uh, at this very microscopic way of the pregnancy uh, of a uh, young woman of Nazareth, out of the way place, uh, and uh, a despised, a despised town, and uh, humble and humble people. The other thing I, I, I wanted to highlight again, I mentioned this. I believe I mentioned this in the last episode, but the way that uh, both Mary and Zechariah see their experiences in the context of the whole history of the Lord's dealings with Israel. Uh, verse fifty: His mercy upon generation after generation on those who fear Him. Uh, then uh, an explicit reference to. Um, the uh, help to Israel and to the promise to Abraham in verse 55. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, which is the note that uh, Zechariah also brings up. Uh, the Lord has kept his covenant, the oath he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us uh, that we might serve him without fear. So there's uh, a recognition that uh, the events that are happening around them are part of this great history of Israel that, and they're rooted in uh, the commitment that God made to Abraham, uh, which is now coming fully to fruition in the advent of Jesus. You mentioned a similarity between Mary and Miriam, 
And perhaps that could be filled out apart from anything else. Their names are connected to each other. Mary and Miriam are ultimately the same name. Um, and Miriam is connected to two key events. Um, she's connected with the deliverance of Moses as he's drawn from the water in the deliverance um, as he's taken by the daughter of Pharaoh. But she's also connected with a later deliverance at the water as Israel, the whole nation, is drawn out of the water. And there, I think, we have a parallel between what happens to Moses and what happens to the whole people. And Miriam is a personal connection between those two events. She's present as a witness and a faithful actor within both of those occurrences. And both of them are connected with birth. In the beginning of the book of the Exodus, there is this theme of birth, Israel and the multiplication of the number of the children of Israel, the threat to the Hebrew infant boys, the Hebrew midwives and their faithfulness, Jochebed, her faithfulness, and this conflict between the serpent of Pharaoh and the seed of the women and the women who are standing up and struggling against the serpent. But then also Israel itself as a woman that's groaning in her travail and seeking to be delivered. Egypt as a womb and ultimately Israel is delivered from that womb. The um, crossing through the Red Sea, this breaking apart of the waters, going through a narrow passage, connected with the firstborn and the opening of the womb and the law that precedes it. Israel is being given birth. And here I think you have a very similar thing. There's the birth of the leader of the people, which is, among other things, a prophetic anticipation of the greater birth that's going to happen in his resurrection, which will be the birth of a great people as Christ opens up the um, waters of Sheol so that we might walk through on dry land and be delivered into the rebirth of the resurrection. And with the presence of Mary connecting those two things, she is definitely a new Miriam. She's someone who presents, who plays a very similar role as Miriam does in uniting those two incidents and presenting um, the unity of those two things in her character and her part. Do you all think that the Magnificat has political significance for us today? I mean, one of the things you have to notice if you're an American evangelical is how much of this, uh, these stories are not about simply an inward or psychological salvation, that the deliverance, the salvation that's announced here is comprehensive, it's historical, extends um, beyond the individual soul to uh, social realities, um, thrones and, and, uh, and poor, uh, and all that. So what, what is the political significance of the Magnificat for us when we sing it? Uh, you, probably, you guys probably remember this, but uh, the monarchs of Europe during at least the 17th and 18th centuries, the Enlightenment, or, uh, and be, before that too, uh, forbade the use of the Magnificat in churches. Um, and they were concerned that it might foment revolution and sedition. Um, so what, how, how should we apply this today? I wasn't aware of that. That's really interesting that uh, they would 
prohibit the singing of the song because it it is seditious and it's uh, there's a kind of revolutionary tone to it uh, and I think it's it's perfectly applicable in all kinds of places around the world. The point I was making at the beginning I think is important to remember that uh, there are uh, political orders that achieve a kind of justice none of them are achieve a perfect justice and so it would be uh, it would be an error to make again to make this an anthem for permanent revolution but there are plenty plenty of places in the world including our own country where the rulers are approving of and defending i'm thinking of the abortion issue in particular defending the slaughter of the innocents uh, they're approving abominable sexual practices and giving legal protection to abominable abominable sexual practices these are not the people we want to have in charge <laughs> and so we pray for disruption and we pray for the the rulers to be thrown down uh, from their thrones and for those who submit to the lord uh, to be exalted one of the keys here more a more general political uh, theory kind of theme is that in no way is this a song that implies that power is wrong or that it's wrong for the humble to exercise power. But what Mary wants is for the humble to exercise power. Uh, what she doesn't want are the proud and the uh, oppressive to be in tr- in places where they can oppress. Power is inevitable, and it's uh, you know you want to exercise morally or not. So I think it it, it has application in all kinds of settings, uh, and it should be a, a song that the church sings with gusto because. We do live in an age and many of many countries where political authorities are uh, defiant of God and we should be crying out to God to cast them down. And beyond that, I think it gives us a sense of the importance of prayer and patience of the people of God as they wait upon the Lord and call upon him to act within their political situations. We often put so much of our faith upon um, prudent political action, um, activism, um, and lobbying, but yet the real power is found at God's throne. And throughout the beginning of the Gospels, I think you have this recurring theme of God is about to visit his people and he will turn the tables. This won't be achieved by human strength and power and political might. It will be achieved by God acting in a remarkable and surprising and um, in 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 imitable way that only God can act in this way and it's only because God is active within the world that it is possible to be um, poor, meek, um, to be those who are humble, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, all these things that we have in the Beatitudes and all the characteristics that Mary describes the people who are about to be blessed by God's advent um, and God's action. Those things are possible precisely because God is the greatest political actor. And so often we can forget that as we become preoccupied with the people in charge without recognizing that God is above them all. That's a great point, Alistair. And I think that's why Mary is such a great example, uh, a type of the church. And that's why we should sing these these canticles, and it helps frame us, it helps orient us to how we should behave in the world. And it's also the most powerful political act we can do in the church. I think at the time of the Reformation, the Reformers 
or at least the uh, second generation of reformers, un- understood this powerfully by singing Psalm 68, let God arise and by his might put all his enemies to flight. That was their prayer, uh, and that unified them also in the way they should relate to one another and to these powerful uh, monarchs. And the monarchs came to fear that because they knew how powerful it was. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.